0: One of the things that I say, and I think this goes to your coaching, is you don't need to believe that you can do it. You just need to believe that you can believe that you can do it. And for right now, maybe you just need to believe that I believe that you can. But if you will believe that, believe that you believe that you can, you will be able to get there.
1: Hello and welcome to the melting pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkaus. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Whitney Johnson. Whitney started off on Wall Street as an equity analyst, and then she built a business with Clayton Christensen where they looked at the S curves of industries and used that as a way of investing. Now she's the CEO of a tech enabled talent development company, Disruption Advisors, one of America's fastest growing private companies. Thinker's 50, ranked her one of the top 10 management thinkers in the world in 2021. And she's a top voice on LinkedIn where she's got almost 2 million followers. She's written some fantastic books, Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team. And she's got a new book out called Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company, which we talk a little bit about at the end. The premise is, as any sort of leader, you need to grow yourself so that you can grow your people. And if you grow yourself and grow your people, then you can grow your company. So we talk about her S-curve model and what it means to you as an individual, how to start, how to envisage it, how to get up at where you might get stuck. And by way of as an example, we use Whitney's success as a public speaker, where she thinks she was 10 years ago, where she was five years ago, and where she thinks she is now. So, a fascinating personal journey up her own S curve of public speaking. I really enjoyed my conversation with Whitney today. I'm sure you will too.
0: I'm Whitney Johnson. I am the CEO of Disruption Advisors, and I live in Virginia in the United States.
1: And what does Disruption Advisors do?
0: We advise you on disruption. <laughs> that was a cheeky answer. I'll give you an actual answer. <laughs> We have uh, a company where we have a an assessment, a diagnostic. It's called the S Curve of Learning Diagnostic, which allows you to see where you, where your people, where your company are in your growth. Whether you are at the beginning of growth, middle high end of your growth and we could talk in in detail about this, but basically it's a diagnostic that assesses where you are in your growth. But then we wrap around that coaching, um, both individual and team coaching, workshops, keynotes, et cetera, that all help support you in the growth as an individual, as a team, and as an organization.
1: And so this S curve then, where does that come from? Is that your own thing or have you taken something and made it your own? What's the
0: Yes and no. Um, (laughs) The S-curve actually has been around for decades. It was was popularized by Everett Rogers, a sociologist back in the 1960s, and he used it to figure out how quickly innovations were going to be adopted. And initially, he was looking at corn in Iowa. I know you said you live on a farm, so you, you care about things like corn. And he was trying to figure out specifically, and I think this is so interesting, there was this brand new type of corn, it was a hybrid corn, that was easier to harvest. It had a 20% higher yield. It was drought resistant. And yet people were really slow to adopt it. It took about five years to get to 10% penetration. But Then after that initial five years, over the next three years, the penetration went from 10% to 40%. And as a consequence, he said, "Hmm, I want to understand this. Why even though this corn makes so much sense, people are slow to adopt it. And so he found that new ideas are adopted along the shape of an S. And so we use the S-curve at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School to help us figure out or to, to use it in our investing. How quickly would an innovation be adopted and therefore how soon should we invest if ever? Well, as we were investing, I had this big insight, this aha, that the S curve could also help us understand how people learn and how they grow, that it could help you recognize that um, whenever you start something new, you are on a brand new S curve. And just as with the corn, um, you may feel like initially growth is very slow until you reach a tipping point or the knee of the curve. And that tipping point is something Malcolm Gladwell popularized. Once you hit that sweet spot of the curve, growth not only is fast it feels fast and this is an exciting exhilarating part of your growth and then you reach the top of that curve where there's this saturation and what's happening there is that you're no longer learning growth is in fact slow and so you get bored and it's time for you to do something new and so the s curve and i can go into more detail but it was originally popularized by everett rogers and i reimagined it as something that you could use to understand what does individual growth look like
1: because i I was thinking one of the things that I find often is people are just so poor at spotting an exponential, right? It, it looks linear for a long time. So he must have been pulling his hair out looking at that corn. You know, it's it's it looks flat, it looks flat, it looks flat. Why will... And then all of a sudden it sort of, it takes off. Yeah. But is that different from sort of crossing the chasm? I mean, that's a bell curve, I know. But do you know like that sort of initial lift... Is that, and because you said sometimes it'll take off and sometimes it never will when you were doing your investing, so.
0: Right, well, you know, what's interesting is if you think about the the S curve, which is basically a diffusion curve and it basically diffuses in the shape of a you know standard bell curve distribution, I think there are definitely similarities to crossing the chasm. What I would say is if you think about the S curve plotting individual growth it really is plotting the emotional arc of growth and so what happens when you start something brand new you start you're working very hard at it um, you're having this a, a number of things are happening actually so the first thing that's happening is that because everything is new and you're experimenting a lot you have this hypothesis about what is it going to take for me to be successful and you're making predictions your your brain has this predictive model that it's running and many of the predictions are inaccurate your dopamine is dropping and dopamine is a chemical messenger of delight. So effectively, when you're doing something new, you are de-delighting. I just made up that word. <laughs> so you, it's not fun. The other thing that's happening for you is that you're mapping out completely new territory. And so for you, it's cognitively and it is emotionally very taxing. So you're exhausted. And then you have this identity thing happening, which is you're no longer who you were, but you're not yet who you're going to be. And so so your identity is is in flux so what's happening here at the launch point as with any innovation it's not that growth isn't happening in fact it is happening it's happening at a very very rapid rate but because it is not yet apparent and you can see this in the in the in the natural world with lily pads you can see this in any sort of biological sort of system that it feels it's happening but it's not apparent. And so it the experience that you have is it feels slow. It feels overwhelming. It feels discouraging. And you have that question of like, why am I even doing this? So that's what the launch point of the S curve can look and feel like.
1: Yeah. Is so it Winston Churchill, when you're in hell, keep going.
0: That's right. That is correct.
1: you got to keep going. Tell me about motivation then right? Because I just immediately thought about, you know, from or to as a, as a motivator, you know, I'm motivated from losing weight. I lose a bit of weight. My motivation goes down. So yo-yo is back up as opposed to maybe going towards fitness where then weight Mm -hmm. is a byproduct. Is that part of...
0: You know, it's a great question, Dom. And I, uh, so I would say it's a both and because, and I'll tell you why it's a both and. So if you look at, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work, they talk about loss aversion theory. And what did they say is we're 2.2 times more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. And so I think there is, there can be some element, especially when you're thinking about doing something new, where you can say, well, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to change anything because you're not motivated by doing something new, but you are motivated by, okay, what bad thing is going to happen to me if I don't do something new? Like I am going to have a heart attack because I I weigh too much or, or, you know, something bad that's going to happen to you can motivate you. At the same time, what I would say is we also know from neuroscience is that whatever you focus on, you get more of. And so if you focus on, oh, I want to lose weight or oh, I want to get out of debt, guess what? You're not going to lose weight and you're going to stay in debt as opposed to, (laughs) I want to be fit. I want to be strong. I want to build wealth. As your brain focuses on those things, what happens is you've got this filtering mechanism. It focuses on um, finding things that will allow you to build wealth. It focuses on finding things that will allow you to get fit and strong. And so your brain, because your brain doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie. It focuses on getting you there. And so I really think it's a both and where you sometimes have to kind of scare yourself into starting. But once you've got that catalyst, it's about using neuroscience in your favor to say, I am this, I am fit, I am wealthy, to get your brain to select for data that will actually allow those things to happen for you to move up that S-curve.
1: You said, you know, you could decide to stay where you are, but if you don't, then, you know, what bad things will happen? What proportion of people... I'm guessing, but most people alive now, ten years from now, there'll be an older version of the person they are today. What proportion of people do you think take a deliberate journey up an S curve, whether they're working with you or me or whoever? What do you? Well, what what proportion of the population is it? Do you think?
0: I don't think it's very big. I I, I think. Um, yeah, well, let me. Give That's you really one depressing, data point. isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, yes, and uh, yes, yes, it is. And I mean, if that's why you and I do the work that we do is because when people have that little thought of, you know, I want to do something different, I want to be better, I want to grow, then we are there to be able to say, okay... I know you don't quite know where to start. Let me be your your guide in this in this hero's journey that you're on. So back to your question a minute ago, I think that the research done by um, Heidi Grant and Tori Higgins said that most people are more focused on prevention as opposed to thinking about the future of what could happen. And so I do think that for most of us, we do need to have that, um, those guardrails of here are the good things that can happen, but also being aware of what, what won't work for you. And let me give you a really simple example to, to make this clearer. I have often thought, oh yes, I'm very motivated by all the good things that will happen, except for when I think about getting ready for a keynote and, (laughs) um, and I, I don't think, oh, it's going to be great. The thing that gets me motivated is if I don't prepare, I am going to get on stage and I'm going to do a terrible job. So I think I better work on this and prepare and then I, I focus my mind on, you know, what it's going to look like and visualizing. But that initial spark for me, and I think for many of us, is the prevention that gets us started.
1: Gets a little bit of terror, a little bit of adrenaline.
0: A little bit of terror is not a bad thing. <laughs> and
1: have you always had that terror around public speaking? I mean, when you started public speaking, has it always been easy for you? or Was it was it terrible and now it's not? Now it's just less terrible.
0: Oh, <laughs> you know what so it's really interesting i think most people struggle with it the irony i think is that uh, you'll meet introverts and they're like i'm so introverted and introverts tend to be good speakers which i think is very odd but anyhow if you go back and you watch my very the very first time i spoke in public and public other than like speaking in church for something um was 10 years ago and i rehearsed 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 i mean like i worked so hard at it and you watch it and it's very middling I mean it's just not very good it's a it's a TEDx talk and you could go watch it if you want but the thing is is that I was determined to get better at it and now I would say I'm pretty good at it and only recently only recently so 10 years in have I gotten to the point I, I gave a speech you know just a few months ago where I was like I actually enjoyed it while I was doing it I enjoyed it because I've been very, uh, what's the word? Very determined because I know that if you deliver a good speech, a speech delivered well, not only instructs people, but inspires them. And I wanted to be able to, I feel so strongly about these ideas. I wanted to get to the point where I could be on stage and have people not just learn something, but feel inspired by it. So they would actually do something different as a consequence of what I had shared with them.
1: And so that S curve then of your speaking journey? What deliberate things have you done on the over that 10-year period? Uh, coaching? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, oh.
1: read loads of books.
0: <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So everybody, we're going to have a little conversation about moving up the S-curve of speaking. So, So what I would say, let me tell you about a, a watershed moment. This is probably about five years ago now. I had given a speech. Um, it was more on disruption, on personal disruption. And they not only didn't like it, they hated it. Like,
1: <laughs> well, the audience, it. the audience or the people who booked you, or both? Both. Oh.
0: So I got the comment cards back and it was just like worst speech of the day. Like no one thought it was good. And,
1: and what did, and, and did you think it was good at the time?
0: Um, no, I didn't think it was good, but I didn't know how bad it was. Like, I didn't know how much I didn't, I was like, Oh, that didn't feel great. But I, I did not know how bad it was. But here's what was so good about this. This goes back to what I said, like what bad things will happen. When I saw those, when I saw that feedback, I had to make a choice. I could have been like, I, I'm not cut out for this. I'm just not going to do this. But it, it galvanized me. It said, I was like, I am going to figure this out. I'm going to get better at this. And so by having that information, I started, you know, studying and I I got a coach and I did even more coaching. And then I started taking and more recently, I've taken lessons from a vocal coach to figure out how to speak more, more clearly. I remember hearing Donald Miller, he wrote, he does story Brown, and, and hearing I interviewed him on my podcast and he said, and I realized, all of a sudden, I realized what had happened. He said, when you're on stage, if you're the hero, then who is the audience? And part of the reason that speech was so bad, I was telling a personal story. I was the hero, and I gave the audience nothing. And so from then, I, then on, I said, okay, so when you're on stage, you have to make the audience the hero. You are the guide. And that totally changes it. And so it was a combination of awareness, a combination of study, a combination of practice. And oh, by the way, the pandemic was helpful. And do you know why? Because <laughs> lots and lots and lots and lots of online webinars where you're getting this constant feedback mechanism that allowed me to practice even more frequently and you couldn't have everything scripted. And it just allowed me to get more relaxed. So So the long story short is, is that if you want to do something and you want to do it well, and you feel passionate enough about it, you can move off the launch point of the S curve, but it has to matter to you to do it. And you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You're going to need to get coaching and you're going to need to get training and you're going to need to mess up and then you're going to need to start all over again.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, and also for the first five years, how much better had you got, do you reckon? Now you look, and now you look back for the first five years, you were about the same.
0: I I think I thought I was getting better, but then that, that, and, and I'm sure I was getting better. Right. But then those comments like, were like, whoa, okay, back down. All right. Or, or maybe even jumping to a new curve, like, okay, or you, you got to start all over again. you got to do this differently, getting more information. And now I would say I'm I, I'm in the sweet spot um, of my speaking. But if you're really determined to be great at something, you actually never get to mastery because you could find ways to continually challenge yourself so that you stay in the sweet spot in perpetuity.
1: Has your perception of time whilst you're speaking now changed?
0: Yes, Yes. Now when I'm speaking, I am not focused on when I'm going to finish. I'm not focused on what it was like at the beginning. I'm completely and totally in the moment. And so that's how my perception has changed.
1: And so in flow, so you're actually enjoying it as opposed to battling your way through it.
0: That's right. And so then are you a speaker? Do you speak too?
1: I I do speak a bit. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But but
1: But I've never had any coaching. I'm so I'm just, I'm I, you oh. know, I've, I've, had, I've had I had Joe Weldon on on my podcast yeah he, he told a very similar story to yours about the because he said he was coaching Vern Harnish to speak and Vern has this sort of his uh, origin myth that he's been telling for yonks yeah and about how he you know was cleaning toilets with his father after his father had, uh, lost his job and and Joe said to him Vern you tell that story it's your story you need to tell the story a different way. You need to say, what, how would you feel if your father had lost his job? And, and then Vern, he said, Vern rang him up afterwards and said, same story, told differently, totally different result. Just that hero guy thing. I think uh, Donald is absolutely right.
0: He nailed it. He nailed it. Right? You on the you on, on this stage are the guide. And yeah. so how do you tell the story that way? Oh, that's so good. Love it. Um, <laughs> So your, your listeners, many of whom are um, entrepreneurs, business leaders, uh, what I would say to each of you who are listening is if you want to really find a way to convey the ideas that you feel are really meaningful and are important, it is worth learning how to speak because there's something different from the written than the spoken word. And so, but if you don't feel like you're a natural speaker, you don't feel like you're you know comfortable doing it you can get better at it. And, and to what I'm, you know, what we're talking about is, is there is no substitute for passion. Like if you care deeply about this topic and you want to convey it to people, you will figure out a way to do it.
1: That motivation comes from purpose. And so it's that uh, motivated towards something. And somebody asked me recently, Dom, does a business have to grow? And I said, well, if it has a purpose, I don't know how it could do anything else. So you feel passionately about enabling individuals or teams' growth, you can't not then get better at it to spread your message that's right you wouldn't be the best at it that you could be
0: yeah, it's the intrinsic motivation right you are you are motivated by something much larger than yourself, and when you are, then they're really you find a way to overcome any obstacle and hurdle because it's it's that important to you
1: uh-huh so uh Diving into the S curve a bit more, maybe not using you as a you and your speaking career as an as, as an example. A
0: little detour there for everybody. I hope you found it interesting.
1: <laughs> Where do people get stuck? Then they get stuck at the beginning because they've got to have some impetus, and then that dopamine drop that you talk about—you know, neurochemical disruption—just makes them feel like they're not making progress, and then. You know, they're not being rewarded uh, for all of this hard work. If they get past that, where else do they get stuck?
0: Yeah, so there are different ways to get stuck. So, like you said, Dom, is at the launch point that the stuckness comes from, I don't know if I can do this or not. And and sometimes it isn't the right S curve. And so you've got to figure out if there's basically the product market fit, but the product is you in this instance. And so you decide not the right S curve, I'll do something else. But sometimes it's just a matter of if you know that your dopamine's gonna drop and it is a curve that you want to be on, then you just say, I just need to persist. It this this will pass. So that's that's the stuckness at the launch point. Now, once you move into the sweet spot where people can get stuck, is that this is the place that's fast. It, it, you know, the, the growth is fast, it feels fast, it's exhilarating. The way you get stuck here is that because you are so competent, and this is usually where your high performers are, right? they everything's working. Um, the product market fit is clear. People say, Wow. Okay, Dom, you're really good. Let's ask you to do this. And then all of a sudden, 10 people are asking Dom to take on 10 projects and Dom has too many projects on his plate. And so he things start to come off the rails. And so the stuck can happen when you're in the sweet spot is if you don't focus. Focus in the sense of learning to prioritize and, and picking, okay, I'm going to focus on these three or four projects. Our brains can only ha- handle three to four things at a time. Project management has borne this out. Out. And so, you want to make sure that you are focusing on three to four things at most so that you can continue through that curve and move up into mastery from a manager standpoint just so you know because you probably people who are you all who are listening you have some people on your team you're like they're doing great they're they're just they're just killing it and then you say i'll just leave them be well don't leave them be you got to make sure you focus on them and say thank you to them i see you i see what you're doing they're not the problem child your launch pointers and your mastery people are the problem child but don't make them the The sweet spotter is a problem child by ignoring them. So, So that's where you could get stuck there as more as you get derailed. Um, as opposed to getting stuck, but the derail, you know, keeps you from moving and completing the cycle of the curve, or you leave because you don't feel like people are, are valuing and appreciating you. And then mastery, we've, we've actually kind of broached this already, you get stuck because you're at the top of the mountain, you've figured everything out, you know exactly what you're doing, you're a little bit bored. Um, but Oh, It can be a lot of work. It can be really scary to jump off the top of a curve and do something new. And so people say, maybe I'll just stay right where I am. And that's why sometimes you need a little bit of a push. And I actually have this hypothesis is that sometimes people lose their jobs. Sometimes people get fired because they're on the top of a curve or they're on the wrong curve. They know it's time to move. They won't move. And so the universe gives them a nudge and so they get unstuck.
1: I think you're right. I I was just thinking when you were talking about being at the bottom and are you on the right curve, Mm -hmm. some people are just delusional about their skills or where they could be. In fact, I was talking to a CEO this morning about somebody in his team and maybe their perception of where they could end up and his were slightly different. Yeah. So we were, we were talking about well how could we how could we send them on a journey mm. to see you know a journey of exploration because you know if you get into something and it's not the right S curve like if you don't have the motivation that dopamine hit will have you reversing quickly backwards.
0: That's right. Well um so may I make a suggestion on on how to have that conversation? Sure. Yeah. So what I would do is, is that the CEO can sit down with the direct report and just draw this S and say, there's the launch point, the sweet spot and mastery. And where do you think you are on this S curve? Let me tell you where I think you are and see if the two, you know, the two match. Um, in terms of what you want to be doing at the very launch point, we had the exploration phase where I'm sure you do this in your work, ask a number of questions like, you know, can you see your believe that you can believe that you're going to be good at this? Does this align with your values? Does it align with your purpose? Is it hard, but not too hard? And can you answer all these questions? And if they're like, yes. Answer yes, yes, affirmative, affirmative, then you say to them, okay, I need you to collect some data. Um, I, I know that you want to be here, but can you go out and collect some data from your stakeholders, do some um, one or two small projects to, to gain the proof points that you need that you can be successful here? And then if you you know if you can, then we'll continue to have you move along this curve. If you can't, now we'll figure out what else you're going to do, but I'm invested in you. I think you're you're terrific, but let's make sure we get the right product market fit for you specifically.
1: Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I I think this individual's probably at a point of mastery uh, in in one role and is thinking that they should move on to another role. And that's where the difference maybe the difference of opinion is there. And so, yeah, it's interesting. That whole master, because the Dunning-Kruger effect, those people are at the top often know that they now know so little. The other thing is if you're so much better than everybody else at this Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. often people just don't have any benchmarks. They don't realize that, you know, they could be 10x where they are today because they're just in a company where they're amazing already.
0: Right. Well, they are amazing. And I think that so you're so kind of unpacking, you might be amazing at it. But one of the ways that you know, that it's time for you to do something new, is that you, well, You're really good at it. Everybody's coming to you and asking you for your advice. Um, You also sometimes will say, well, that's not how we do it here. (laughs) Um, You can find yourself maybe getting a little bit envious of people who are coming up behind you because they're growing and you don't feel like you are growing. But I think that when you are really good at what you're doing and amazing at it, if you have this, you, you could just be in the sweet spot. But if you have this feeling of, I think there's more for me. I can just feel it. I know there is more for me. That is a sure indication that this this is, you've hit the top of your curve and it's time for you to do something new.
1: Does that always have to be a personal decision? Say more. You know, we were talking earlier about the how many people actually believe they're on this journey or want to be on a uh-huh. journey. So, you know, you were saying that your public speaking was around trying to inspire people. Mm-hmm. Is it always pull? Or or can it be push?
0: Oh, you mean pushed to a new curve? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hello, pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. That's part of why it was so difficult from a psychological, neurological perspective, because all of us were on an S-curve, the the pre-pandemic S-curve, all of us. And then the pandemic came and it pushed all of us onto a new S-curve, every single one of us. And so we had to make this decision, well, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to stomp my foot like a two-year-old and say, this isn't fair? I don't like this. This is awful. And I'm not saying that things weren't challenging. So please don't misinterpret me. But, you know, we get ourselves into this new situation and it's really hard and it's really challenging. What are we going to do? It is difficult, but are we going to be a victim? Or are we going to figure out what am I going to do with this? And so you can be pushed, you know, like I said, sometimes we've been fired from jobs, etc. but what are we going to do with this situation? And once you are pushed, whether you're pushed or you jump being at the launch point of the curve, you still have the same opportunity regardless of how you got there. But that's part of why, I believe over the next few years, we're going to see so much growth because psychologists have said that any period of severe stress, like a pandemic, there's often tremendous growth, they call post traumatic growth. And so that's the opportunity of all of us who had this experience of like, I don't know how to do this, we discovered we're more resilient, we're more capable than we ever thought we were. And now we've got this skill that we, for some of us was kind of flaccid, we weren't used to doing new things. And now we've all gotten a lot better at doing new things. And so I I think that was one of the gifts. And that's why for me, anyway, it wasn't the great resignation, it was the great aspiration of like, oh, I'm capable of more. I want a different kind of life. Now I'm going to figure out how to have it.
1: Yes, I I remember looking at some data, actually before the pandemic, looking at what proportion of people in London had changed jobs after 2008. And it was like 30% of people in London had changed jobs the next 12 months. So, you know, you quite often get this through a period of Mm -hmm. what people perceive to be change or disruption, people hanging on. And then you've got that pent up demand Mm -hmm. And, uh, and away we go again.
0: Right. N- not only pent up demand, but this sense of I can do this. I navigated all of this so I can go do this thing that maybe I didn't think I could do.
1: And you, your new book, who's that for?
0: Mm. Well, it's for you <laughs> um, and everyone who's listening. But more specifically, the subtitle of the book is Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. So, it's for you as an individual if you want to demystify the process of personal growth. What does growth look like? Because once you understand what growth looks like, then you increase your capacity to grow. Um, So, it is written to the individual. But at the end of every section, I have interludes where I say, okay, so now that you've figured out how to grow yourself, because you can't grow your team or your company unless you grow yourself. But now that you've thought about how you grow yourself, here's how you can use this tool, this very simple, this very visual model to grow your people. Because you're growing yourself, you could now grow your people. And because you're growing your people, then you're going to be able to grow your company. So it's written to you as an individual, whether you are in the workforce or not, it's written to managers who are building a team and, and want to build a team that's optimized for innovation. And it's also written to leaders of an organization who are trying to figure out how to optimize their workforce. Because if you understand where everybody is in their growth, then you can um, help them grow. And and we actually believe, back to the standard bell curve distribution, that you want to at any given time have about 60% of your people in the sweet spot of their growth 20% at the launch point and 20% mastery. So basically you're you can manage your organization as a portfolio of S-curves.
1: But everybody growing.
0: Everybody growing.
1: And so is that your definition of, I mean you you had a book, Build an A-Team. So is that is that your definition of an A-Team that everybody's growing?
0: Yes, everybody's growing. And you are very, not only is everybody growing, so everybody is building momentum regardless of where they are, but you also are thinking very, you're very deliberate and very thoughtful about, okay, how many people do I need to have in the sweet spot of the curve? How many do I need to have in the mastery, in launch point and mastery? So for example, if you've got, A very large organization where you've got a lot of capacity for training, you're probably in in an older or traditional, you're probably in a position to have more people at the launch point than you would if you're a startup, where all of you are trying to figure out so much. You don't necessarily have the luxury of having more people at the launch point because you yourself are. So you need to bring in ringers, people who have expertise and mastery, maybe for three months, maybe for six months, who can teach you some things that you need to know so you can continue to move up the curve as a business. But yes, that's what build an A team is about is make sure everybody's growing and think about, okay, so how, what percentage need to be in the sweet spot launch point and mastery given the needs of, of what our business is trying to do?
1: And this is at each team and then holistically across the organization.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: You were talking earlier about CEO talking in a one-to-one conversation with his direct report and saying, "Where do we think you, where do I think you are? Where do you think you are? Just capturing that for everybody in the organization. And how do you measure momentum? Then how do you measure... Yeah, because I could see how you could we could all we could agree where we might be now, mm-hmm. but then how does that translate into a plan?
0: Yeah, so we we actually have an assessment that we administer, and so you can you can measure momentum by okay, so where are you today and on the S curve, and where are you six months from now, and have you moved? And do I think you've moved? Uh, are you in mastery, and and you were starting to sort of top off and have you moved to a different role. And so you measure momentum by being able to say, you know, where are you today versus where you were six months ago? I think the thing too, Don, that's really important here is it's not just about where do I, the manager, think you are, it's about where do you think you are? Because I can think that you are in the sweet spot like you, of course, are in the sweet spot. But if you're having the experience of being in mastery, that's going to predict your behavior, not where I think you are. And so you're you're also measuring momentum by just being able to understand what's the perception of the actual worker and do they feel like they've moved. And this S-curve insight, this, this assessment helps you gauge that.
1: And one of the things that's always given me great joy working with people who've worked with me is they end up somewhere that they couldn't envisage. Yes. And so how do you bring that to bear? You know, Because you're sort of saying, okay, well, I'm going to put opportunities in front of them. If I told them that this is what I think they could do or should do, we'd spend a lot of time with them arguing about how this wasn't possible. But I know if I just keep putting stuff in front of them, they'll lap it up. So that's not them being able to decide on the destination and how to get there. That's actually got to put it in front of them
0: yeah, and then they take yeah. advantage of it. So what I hear you saying is this isn't about the mechanics of moving up an S-curve. This is about you as a coach. This is about you saying, oh, I know you think this is the S-curve for you, but no, actually this 10,000 feet higher is the S-curve for you. I can see you doing it. That's what I hear you saying. Yes. And then here are the mechanics for moving up that. So the way I think about that is, uh, one of my wonderful mentors was Bob Proctor, and he thought about a lot about visualization. and And in the book, I actually feature a fellow by the name of Marcus Whitney, who he was a college dropout. He was in this situation where he had two young children. He's living in an efficiency motel, which basically means he's living week to week. And he's Hello. like... This is not good. Like this has got to change. And so he decides he wants to become a computer programmer. And what he says is, you know, I'm working as a server in a restaurant. He's a black man in America. Like there's he's like there's not a lot of evidence to me or anybody else that I can become a programmer. But then he studied and he studied and he studied and he's at the launch point of the curve and then he said this. He said even though there wasn't a lot a lot of evidence and even though I didn't say I'm becoming a programmer, he said I am a programmer. And by using those words, the invoking those words, and if you know the, the Christian tradition of I am, he was basically saying he was willing himself to be a programmer into existence. And so one of the things that I say, and I think this goes to your coaching, is you don't need to believe that you can do it. You just need to believe that you can believe that you can do it. And for right now, maybe you just need to believe that I believe that you can. But if you will believe that, believe that you can, not believe that you believe that you can you will be able to get there. And so that's why coaches and mentors and, and truth tellers are so important is they so often can see things for us that we can't see. We need, we need people to say that and we hang on to that for a little while until we can start to see it for ourselves.
1: Very good, very good. It's, I, I was just thinking back as you were talking about that example, and I was thinking there's a guy I spoke to who was running a guitar shop in Glasgow and he didn't actually play guitar himself. And he was saying about only about 5% of people he sells a guitar to will actually end up being able to play the guitar. And so he, he said it was sort of a bittersweet job. He hadn't been himself been able to force himself to learn to play the guitar. He tried and failed several times. But he did love selling guitars to people who wanted to go on the journey and succeed. And so quite often he's buying guitars back from people who hadn't made it work. But it's just, we were talking earlier about what proportion of the population can get themselves up an S-curve or are motivated to. And certainly that's one data point, 5% of people (laughs) who buy a guitar get to play it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating.
1: What do you know now that you wish you'd known earlier
0: so I would say I'm going to say two things because I don't want to just choose one. The thing that I know now that I wish I'd known earlier is that even though I think I'm not going to be do a very good job at parenting, I wouldn't pull away from it because I would stay in it even though I feel like I'm not doing a good job. Um, I think about when my children my children are in college now and I think about that of like, you know, you don't think you're going to do well, but sometimes you're like, well, if I'm not going to do a good job, you know, perfection kicks and then I just won't be, you know, be available. And I would just lean into that and go, I'm going to be terrible at this. I'm at the launch point of the curve and just stay in that. So I wish I had understand the, understood the S curve of parenting when my children were young. Now I know, and I can do a good job as they are adults. And I think the second thing that I know now is that I would have gotten a coach when I was in college. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, our careers could have been so much better if, if we had, at least I feel like mine would have been better if I'd had someone coaching me from the time that I started my career and, and all the, the challenging, you know, you can figure out the functional piece of, the, of work, but so much of being successful in your career and on the job is, is navigating the emotional side of it. And we don't have any training to do that. So I would have had a coach.
1: Oh, I, I remember saying to my CEO in my forties, I wish I'd known this shit when I was 20. Right. Just, and you're right, it was, nothing was about functional. It was about, it was about how to manage conflict and, and stuff, which actually is just as applicable in the home as it is at work. So, you know, there's just everyday life, really, everyday life skills, which, you know, my daughter's come home with her fountain pens. And I think, really, that still feels very Victorian I mean, you know, they haven't even, there's no, not even touch typing. It's like there is something visceral about writing it, but um, it does feel as though it hasn't moved on massively. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I'm with you on that. And what, um, I mean, other than the fabulous books that you've written on the S curve and disruption and team building and growth, what other books along the way have you found inspirational or maybe you're reading now?
0: Yeah. So some books that I'm reading right now or just finished reading um, were, I just finished reading Susan Cain's Bittersweet, which I thought was really inspirational. It got me to go to a Jacob Collier concert um, in North Carolina, one of your fellow countrymen. I'm currently reading Range by David Epstein, which I'm finding very um, inspiring. And I'm reading another book, which is coming out in August. So I have an advanced reader copy called Anti-Time Management by Richie Norton. It's just terrific. And what he talks about is, you know, we do so much of, well, you know, in five years when blah, 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 blah happens and I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And he said, just make the time now. So don't say I'm going to go on that trip in five years. If you want to go on that trip, then plan that trip for next year and figure out how how to make everything else work its way around that. And so, I'm finding it very very inspiring and and as a consequence of that book, I I booked a vacation for our family to Costa Rica in a year and a half. I've never done that before. But by doing that and saying it is going to happen, then everything else will work around it. And I think that's what he means by anti-time management. I think it's very inspiring.
1: I well, because so often people put that off and put that off and if it's 5 years away, it's just so easy to just then do it, you know, again right. and again and again. Those become losses, don't they? Because you there's this sort of sense of hope about it, but it just it's never there. There's no fulfillment.
0: No, nope. no. Whereas if you if you book a vacation a year and a half in advance, then it just becomes a part of. Well, of course I'm going, because your brain adjusts.
1: So your trip to Costa Rica is it longer than normal, or is it?
0: Yeah, it, yeah. It'll be a little bit longer. It'll be two weeks, and so that's a long time for me, who <laughs> likes to work a lot. <laughs>
1: that is i find that fascinating that that a two-week vacation needs to be booked 18 months in advance
0: what can i say i'm a recovering workaholic
1: (laughs) that's because you're driven by driven by purpose Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and Mm so you don't want to waste your time Mm -mm. on vacation
0: Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) well when you say it like that i'm driven by purpose don how about that
1: fascinating whitney it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today and uh, thank you for bringing the world your books and the podcast and uh, and all the stuff that you do it's uh, fabulous
0: well thank you for having me it, w- it was a lot of a lot of fun with all of our twists and turns <laughs>
1: <laughs> perfect